0: To all who come to this happy place, welcome.
1: We pillage, we plunder, we rifle and loot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho.
2: There's so much that we share, that it's time we're away. it's a small world after
0: all. Take them back into the past, into the days of the... The pirates, you know, where the whole Caribbean area was full of pirates, and they were always sacking towns and things. You believe in pirates, of course.
1: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Magic Kingdom monorail station. On behalf of the cast of the Walt Disney World Resort, we'd like to welcome you to the Magic Kingdom.
2: W W W Radio. Radio.
3: Hello everybody and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 193 for the week of October 24th, 2010. In the next of my Legends of Disney Imagineering series of interviews, I had the honor of spending the day with a fascinating woman and true legend, Alice Davis. We'll discuss her fairy tale story of how she came to work for and with Walt Disney through her marriage to Mark Davis, one of his nine old men. In addition to discussing her relationships with both, we also closely examine her work on classic films such as Sleeping Beauty and attractions such as It's a Small World and Pirates of the Caribbean. Alice shares her very personal stories and humorous anecdotes about her work and life from her early beginnings to the World's Fair, to her ongoing connection to Disney enthusiasts today. I'll have some announcements, then play more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. The name Davis is one that is synonymous with Disney magic and Disney legends. Mark Davis was extraordinary, while his wife Alice's accomplishments are equally as impressive. The story is a true Disney fairy tale, from the fortuitous meeting of her husband and fellow Disney legend to her work on classic films such as Sleeping Beauty and attractions such as It's a Small World and Pirates of the Caribbean. I am truly honored and privileged to welcome Disney legend Alice Davis to the show.
2: Hello there. (laughs) I'm very (laughs) glad to be um, requested to speak in front of your audience.
3: Well, before we get started, I can't tell you truly what a thrill this is for me on a personal level because of the admiration and the appreciation I have for your work and your husband's work. So when this opportunity came up, uh, I, was, I was excited personally, as well as just for being able to share uh, your important stories with with my audience.
2: Thank you very much
3: so I, I wanted to before we start talking about the work with Disney, uh, talk about your early career because I think it 's a fascinating journey, going from really designing ladies undergarments to becoming uh, you know a Disney legend and really now kind of a Disney household name. Uh, tell us a little bit about that those early days, uh, which are which are education and your early work.
2: Well, I think that the interesting part of my my uh, walk, shall we say, through the youth of my life, uh, was I won a scholarship to Schneider Art Institute out of high school, and uh, when I went up to sign up for the school, I said that I wanted to become an animator. And Mrs. Chenard, fortunately, was the one helping the registrar, and uh, she. I happened to get her to register me, and uh, she said, "Well, we we don't train girls for animation because the animators are all men, and the re- the girls are the ink paint artists." And I said, "Well, that's like I don't want to be an ink and artist because that's like." Coloring a coloring book when you're a child, <laughs> putting color in between uh, lines and not going over the line. And uh, she, she looked at me with uh, knowledge of knowing what I was talking about. And uh, so she said, But I can't put you in school uh, for two years. We have a two year waiting list because it was right after the Second World War, and all of the uh, Young men who didn't who blew their first chance of getting into school in that uh, had a chance on the GI Bill to go, so they were all signing up for for art school because they wanted to go into advertising and things of that type. So, uh, also into the motion picture business. Um, so, uh, she said, "Just a minute." I started to cry because I I knew that if I didn't get going in school with the the scholarship I would never get to go. And so she left, and she came back, and she was standing in the doorway with a woman with a a white smock on with a tape measure hanging around her neck. And then they walked away, and Mrs. Chenard came back a few minutes later and said, you're starting school Monday morning, and you're going to be a costume designer. You're going to be in the costume design department because that's the only opening I have in the school. And so I said, fine, but I I didn't know Dior from a shoe. <laughs> when I had the first test I had in the class, I got zero because I'd never heard of the people <laughs> before. And so I knew I got a, I had to keep a B-plus average to keep my scholarship. So, boy, I had to really dig in and, and study. and uh, But Mrs. Shenard said at the same time, uh, and this is the interesting part, is that she said... I know you have your heart set on being an animator, but she said, you know, she said, we have a Mr. Mark Davis who is starting on Monday teaching animation drawing on Tuesday nights. And she said, if you'll call the role for me in the classes, in the evening classes, uh, I'll let you take his class free. So I studied with Mark for two years um, and called the role... (laughs) And then continue. Oh, and I had to take two pieces of white, perfect white chalk to Mister Davis for his, his uh, lectures when he talked with the class, and um, so I did that the whole time I was a student at the school. I take the chalk to him, and everybody tried to, to make big things out of uh, hanky panky, going on and so on. And I've heard all kinds of marvelous stories, but they never happened. <laughs> I mean, he was. He was Mr. Davis, and I remember when he started the class. You know, everybody was calling him Mr. Davis, and he said, uh, "Don't call me Mr. Davis; just call me Mark." Nobody would, because it was a matter of respect in those days to call people by their last name. So he never got called Mark; it was always Mr. Davis. In fact, even when we started going together and that I was still calling him Mr. Davis and he finally said, the name is Mark. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's the way it was. And so the day I graduated from, from Chenard, I got a job right out of school designing brassieres and girdles <laughs> and lingerie. And I learned a lot about elastics. And that was very helpful to me. Plus, Mark's class... In learning how the body works and functions, and the structure, and the the gravity and everything else, was the best thing I had in regards to designing clothes, because I knew how far you could pull an arm, how far you reach with the arm. Uh, also, in in girdles and that, you you learn where uh, you can hold things tighter with elastic, and not have them roll or move around. You know. And I always felt it was a good profession to be in because you never saw the wrong person wearing <laughs> one of your garments with the fat rolling over the top and the bottom. So I'd always think to myself, that's not one of mine. <laughs> but uh, so when one day uh, I got a call from from Mark, and he said, you're the one that I think can help me more than anyone. He, he was working on uh, Briar Rose dancing in the forest and he said we're going to take and shoot part do some live action shooting of her dancing to get the footwork in that and he said and I want the skirt to work a certain way and he said I know that you know what I'm talking about in regards to the movement of the figure and how the skirt should work with it and so he said would you make the costume for me and so I said yes of course And I made the costume, and it worked out just great. Mm. And uh, the dancing that you see in in, uh, Sleeping Beauty of Aurora in the forest with the prince was the garment that I made and the way the skirt worked and that. So I was very proud of that.
3: And you finally got to work in animation, sort of roundabout. And that that love of animation that you must have had at a very early age, do you remember when that got started, and, and was it sort of the... The Disney films that impacted you as you when you were younger?
2: Oh boy, did it! Um, we lived right near the Disney studio, and there was a big sign on the top of the building of Mickey Mouse. You know, we go by, oh boy, that's where Mickey Mouse lives. You know, with big eyes. And, and uh, uh, then my mother, during the Depression, it was very tough to get anything. In fact. Um, the vet for my dogs was telling me that when he was a young boy in, in grammar school and, and Snow White opened, uh, his father couldn't afford to buy tickets. But he was able to to buy a round trip ticket on a streetcar to go from the house to the uh, Carthay Circle where Snow White was showing and see the placards out in mm-hmm. front. And his father took photographs of him standing and f- standing with Snow White and 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 the dwarfs and that, and he was big time at the school for over a month, showing the pictures of he got to go and and see the theater where Snow White was showing. Well, my mother saved money for about six months, and for my eighth birthday, she took me to see Snow White. And of all things that I fell in love with, I fell in love with Gump uh, with uh, Grumpy, playing the organ and all the different animals and such bouncing up and down and such on the organ. And uh, it, that was the day I, I was a Disney fan from there on.
3: So it really was a dream come true, and I, I can't imagine what you feel like when your mentor slash boyfriend, teacher, tells you you finally have an opportunity to come and work for Disney. Um, tell us what that was like and then sort of how you were able to... Did you stay on with the company right away?
2: No, no, this was uh, freelance from the side. I, I wasn't an employee. I just made the, the costume, and there were a couple others that I made, but nobody knew I was working for Disney. Uh, I was kind of like a jobber is what you call it. Mm-hmm. You'd be paid by the day or by the hour, and you'd do what they asked of you. So we bought this house, after we got married. And um, I was stripping wallpaper and all the good things that you do when you buy a house and move into it. And um, I was very tired this one day. And um, I called Mark at the studio and said, you're taking me to dinner tonight because I'm (laughs) too tired to cook. And so... We were sitting having a cocktail at the Tamar which happened to be one of Walt's favorite restaurants. And uh, we were having, as they say, a cocktail, and this hand came down on Mark's shoulder. And this voice said, Mark, is this your new bride? And I looked up and it was Walt Disney. And he sat down and joined us. And he had a cocktail with us, and he started quizzing me on what I did before I got married, how I supported myself, and so on. And and uh, when I announced elastic, he said, I don't know anything about elastic. He said, elastic has always fascinated me. And he started asking me all the different kinds of elastic, and whether it was synthetic or with cotton or with wool or whatever— and uh, we had a conversation for at least a half an hour just talking about elastics. And uh, he was fascinated with it, but he always was, anything that he didn't know anything about, he immediately started asking all kinds of questions and was got very interested in anything, everything interested him. So anyway, he finally said, well, I think I better let you get to your dinner on that and... He he said goodbye and he started walking away and he turned around and he said, and he pointed his finger at me and he said, "You're going to work for me someday." He didn't know I did the other things. A lot of people work for him all their life and never know him. So I was lucky from that standpoint, very lucky.
3: And that was that was your first ever meeting with Walt Disney. What was that like when Walt Disney comes over? And certainly your your husband had worked there, but uh, when he comes over and says to you, basically, unbeknownst to you, unbeknownst to him, saying your dream is going to come true and you're going to work for me someday.
2: I didn't believe it at first. I, I thought to myself, oh, sure, sure. You know. And then as the months went by, I was positive. I was never going to hear from him. And it went maybe two years. And one day the phone rang and it was his secretary. And she said, uh, Alice, Walt wants to know if you want to do the small world costumes. And I said, do I? <laughs> and she said, we'll be here tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. So I was, and I got the job. And uh, we had one one year to do the whole thing—to do the research, the costumes, the patterns, uh, arrange all the things so that each each costume could be made in a matter of hours. If something happened, you know, like if there was a fire or a flood or something, and uh, they had never had a system, and they never made the costume, they. They never made the costumes out of a pattern. They would just make a costume and, and use it as long as it would last. And then when that went, it would be a number of days or even a week or so before you'd get another costume and things would have to shut down. So I insisted that they have two costumes so that if something happened, you could make another costume in no time at all. And you would have a a, a filler to f- take care of the situation until you got the next group of costumes made. So uh, it was it was uh, a very fast. There wasn't time to do any color sketches or anything. But I I didn't have to make any color sketches because I got to work with Mary Blair, which was a thrill of my life, and uh, she set all the costume colors up. And uh, I got to work with her with that, and uh, she was she was uh, an absolute joy to work with.
3: You mentioned the research process. Can you tell us about that? Because I, I always wondered, you know, how do you go about? How are you tasked to go about and accurately portray authentic dresses from around the world, and also one that would have to be somewhat timeless because you knew that this attraction was going to last and be seen by millions of people over literal generations.
2: Well, the the best uh, research that I was able to find was they had at Disney Studios in the library, they had some National Geographics that were before the turn of the century. They were 1890 up to 1900. And that's when they had the best research for costumes of peasants and of different countries, and that was a great help. And they had a number of other uh, fashion books, but it was mostly uh, National Geographic, and there was a a magazine from England that was uh, National Illustrated or something like that that had a lot of wonderful... uh, festivals and such you could get different costumes from uh, and then just look up uh, lands and people that had a lot of wonderful costumes in them but it was the older ones the new ones uh, they're not that they were not that interested <laughs> in costumes shall we say but uh, it was it was of uh, the research also was to find out what colors you shouldn't use or what shapes you shouldn't use and uh Mary wanted to put the the bearskin uh, hats on the guards of the, the uh, Buckingham Palace uh, in bright red, and I said, I know, I read somewhere that they had to be black, and I can't <laughs> remember why, and my oldest brother was a, a history nut, so I called him and asked him if he'd look it up for me, please, <laughs> because I was short on time, and it he found it and it was they had to be black if you made them any other color you did not accept the fact that the british beat napoleon at waterloo <laughs> and so they went black and stayed black
3: and in addition to and I'm interested about the collaborative process with Mary Blair which also worked with Harriet Burns and Joyce Carlson i mean it really was a team effort Tell us about the process of of all of you working together to put this together in such, like you said, a very, very short amount of time.
2: I think one thing that that Walt did that was, I thought, most unique, we never spoke to each other by the last name. Everybody spoke to each other by their first name, including Walt. If you called him Mr. Disney, an eyebrow would go up, and you knew you goofed. (laughs) (laughs) But his father, his brother, same thing. Everybody was first name, and it, um, and we didn't have titles, so there was no competition to get somebody else's title or anything like that. It was, it was a very happy place to work. In fact, I thought, boy, is it ever lucky to be able to working, be working here because you were enjoying it so much. You were eager to get to work early just to get <laughs> <laughs> do it more of it and. I didn't mind working on weekends and all that because it was, was a joy to do.
3: And I think a lot of that still sort of carries down to people. And I think, think that's why what distinguishes working and going to Disney as anywhere else, because people love what they do. But Waltz also gave you some relatively unprecedented free reign to a certain degree and maybe things something that wouldn't happen today when it came to things like budget. And what those costumes were going to cost. Tell us about sort of, sort of that freedom that he gave you when you were designing the oh, costumes.
2: He, he gave us great freedom. Um, he would say what he wanted, and then he would ask you, "When do you think you'll have it ready for me to see?" And you'd say, "Maybe Tuesday of next week." And he said, "Okay, I'll see you Tuesday at two o'clock." He never wrote anything down, but he was there. Tuesday at 2 o'clock and you had better be there too (laughs) because that's one thing he did not appreciate and that was anyone being late. You had to have an awful good reason why you were late. And if you had your work done, uh, and whether he liked it or not, uh, there was never any anger uh, sometimes he would be upset with you, but it, it was it was done in a very mannerly way. It wasn't screaming at you or anything. Um, and he would say, let's see what we can do to change this and ha- have it come around the way. Uh, I think it will work better. And he said, sometimes you can get something better out of something that you have to redo. Uh, so it was... And then, you know, sometimes if... He had to have it before the date you gave him. He would have his secretary call on the phone and say that he was being pressed and pushed to have it ready ahead of time and Could you possibly do it and have it ready by such and such a time and you do your best to do it uh as far as uh what how much you would spend on costume and that i I asked him uh how much I would be allowed to have on the budget should you know that I shouldn't go over for a costume, and he said, Alice, and he, he looked at me kind of like, oh, for heaven's sake, you know. And he'd say, Alice, he said, I want you to do the best costume you can possibly design that any woman from the age of one up to 100 would want to have herself, would enjoy looking at and having it. And he said, we don't worry about what it costs. You always give the public more than they expect, and they will come back. He said, if you cheat them, you're never going to see them again. So he said, we do the best and give the the audience the best. And we will have a good show for everybody. And, and they will enjoy it. And we will enjoy seeing them enjoy it.
3: Yeah, and I get the sense uh, that it was you did the best work that you could, not just because you wanted to be proud of it, but you wanted... Walt to be proud of and you knew what that how important it was for the guests
2: you wanted to have Walt pleased with it that was the most important thing is to please him because he was so so wonderful to work with and you've got all these different people we all got together and would could come out with the best we could possibly put together and that would please him when you didn't please him you felt like a monster you went home with a long face and you tried to figure out what you could do to to improve what you goofed at, and um, you always. The other thing he wasn't very good at telling you what he thought of what you were doing. He he would say something about well that'll work or something mm-hmm. like this, and then he always knew who your close friends were. And on his way to wherever he was going, he would happen just happen to go by to see them and say, hey, you ought to go over and see what Alice is doing. She's really doing a good job. The What she's doing now is really coming out nicely. And that was your compliment, because he, he knew that they would immediately run and tell you. But it was very difficult for him to to uh, tell you what how he felt about something.
3: And everybody seems to, that I've had a chance to speak with, who worked with Walt, uh, and with is the operative word there, has that same thing. There wasn't that fear of Walt being mad. It was that you didn't want to disappoint Walt. Right. And I think the fact that you just you you a couple of times said you know working with Walt. It was never working. It never seems like it was working for Walt. That you were all working together, and he was
2: almost more like someone that worked with you as opposed to your boss. Right. Very much so. He was he was the the top man, and you didn't have a whole bunch of meetings. You had a meeting with him when he'd come through the shop, and if it was something he wanted to see or or make a comment on, he would come by and and speak to you on this and set up another date to see you later. But there was never all these meetings. I think on on, uh, uh, Small World, I was maybe in six meetings, with a group, a large group. Otherwise, he would see... And we got a lot more work done that way, too, because when you had a group of a whole bunch of people, by the time everybody got finished putting in their two cents worth, the half the day was shot. And this way, uh, he got everything done the way he wanted, and, and we put in a full day.
3: Do you think that Walt seemed to have a, a trust in the people that worked with him, and a knowledge that, although you may not have ever done this before, he knew that you could get the job done.
2: Yes, you know, and he could put together people that didn't like each other very much. And they would, uh, it was almost as if it was competition to put out the best. Uh, he he always knew, uh, he would go around and, and it was like, uh, uh, what's his name? one that did the head of the sculpture department he was an animator and Walt was looking for a sculptor and he decided that, that uh, Blaine would be the one to do the, the sculpting because he was doing little sculpting things on this side that he sometimes had in his, his office mm-hmm. and Walt put him to work doing the sculpting for the, for the small world and also them for the pirates so and did a magnificent job uh, and he did the sculpting of of Walt standing with Mickey Mouse. It's there in the center hub of of Disneyland. Um, and he did a wonderful one of of uh, uh, Roy Walt's mm. brother sitting on a uh, bench. That's uh, sitting in the the hall of uh, the handprints of of uh, the legends. Mm. But. Uh, he he always got the right people together. And when you spoke about Harriet Burns, I called her the mother superior of the shop. <laughs> she she never missed a thing, and she was always the perfect lady, and always dressed beautifully with scarf and everything else. And she'd be working, in all this this gook and stuff, <laughs> making skins and so on, and she'd never get anything on her clothes. She was always <laughs> immaculate, and it, it just astounded me, and I loved her dearly, and uh, she's been a terrible loss, terrible loss.
3: Well, you know, we mentioned obviously your name and Harriet Burns and Joyce Carlson and Mary Blair. You spoke about how women weren't allowed to be animators, but here you were working on arguably one of the most important projects in a long time, which was going to be something for the World's Fair. Did you realize at that point that maybe you had broken a barrier or that Walt was giving you an opportunity?
2: Oh, Walt gave gave me a marvelous opportunity. He gave all of us, and, and uh, 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 Carlton, uh, Joyce Carlton. She was somebody else that was terrific. Just marvelous. And she spent her whole life with with, uh, Small World. Uh, She was uh, in ink and paint, but she could match paint. You know, the paint was one color when it was wet, and when it was dry, it was another color. She could mix it and mix it so well that when it dried, it would match perfectly to the dried one. And I've never seen anything like it. She had a wonderful eye for it. And and uh, um, Ward Kimball's wife, Betty, she also was very good at mixing paint and matching it up. And that's not easy.
3: So what was the opening of the World's Fair and the opening of Small World to an incredible response like for you personally?
2: Well, there were... There were some funny things that happened and some <laughs> things that were kind of wild. But I think one of the funniest ones was the skin on the the dolls. Where where there were dolls that were dancing, like the can-can girls, doing the kicking, mm-hmm. the skin on the knee would tear before 17 hours. They had to go 17 hours a day, seven days a week. And the first day, after just a few hours, the skin would rip. Mm-hmm. So... I had designed the the co- the costumes just like they are in France with the little panties, ruffled panties, and the and the skirts. So, what were we going to do about the skin? Because we couldn't get it to work. So, uh, I put long pantaloons just just below the knee, with a little ribbon and lace, you know, and so on, and. Uh, it was about two days before the show was to open and we had everything up and working and uh, Walt came through with his, his uh, Admiral and General, General Potter and, and uh, Admiral Fowler and the Admiral was standing up in the back of the boat. The only thing missing was he didn't have his hand inside <laughs> his vest <laughs> and uh, Walt was sitting in the front of the boat with the, with General Potter who was making all the the, uh later on made all the, the uh, waterways and everything down in Florida. And Walt saw me. I, there was a bridge that went over the top where you come in with a boat to change, uh, to get out of the boat and get into the boat. And Walt called me. I was walking across on the bridge, I was about the center of the bridge, and he said, "Alice, how come you put long pantaloons on the Can Can girls?" Well, I knew he didn't want a big, long story about what happened in this, so i I looked at him and I said, "You told me you wanted a family show <laughs> and then I took off and ran like crazy, getting off the bridge, so he couldn't ask me any more questions. <laughs> Working on the working on the the show's opening at the World's Fair, um, the Small World part was marvelous, uh, but I was scared to death because they were having the uh, um, UNICEF people coming in with their children, and also having the United Nations come in with their children, and all of these people from all these different countries. And I was thinking, what are they going to tear apart, <laughs> you know? Oh, God. And I was just a nervous wreck. And uh, I was shocked beyond belief. I didn't have a single complaint, not one. And I couldn't believe it. Then I then I didn't know quite what to do, whether I was walking or floating. <laughs> but uh, that was one of the great joys of doing the, the small world, to have it come out so well. And... Uh, I owe a great deal to, to everybody that worked with me. You know, it was a, it was a gr- group effort.
3: So when, when the attraction opened, when the, when the fair opened, you went up to New York, and did you stay up in New York for a while just to make sure everything was okay and then eventually oh. go back?
2: I went to New York ahead of time to dress all the figures, and it was difficult to do because the unions in New York are something else, and you're not allowed to touch the fabric. So if you're trying to tell them how to fix something and that you can't touch it, you have to try to explain to them. And, of course, they wanted to get as much hours in as possible so they don't understand what you're talking about. So uh, I would wait until everybody left, and then the things that I wanted to have done that I had to touch I would take home and sit up all night at the hotel doing it all by hand and running back before anybody came to work in the morning and, and putting it up.
3: So I want to talk to you, obviously, a little bit about, or a lot about, Pirates of the Caribbean. Obviously, your, your husband, Mark, do the concept sketches, but th- then you have to go from working on every little girl's dream to, to dress up dolls all day to turning his two-dimensional sketches into three-dimensional costumes and really pieces of art tell us about that process
2: well the first thing about it that that uh, i used to say about it was i went from sweet little children to dirty old men (laughs) overnight Um, and also that disney got uh three and one when they they got me to do the designing because when you graduated from when you got a graduation certificate from from uh chenard art institute in in uh, costume design you had to be able to do children's clothes and the patterns and such you had to do women's wear and the patterns and cuts and you had to do men's tailoring and i thought i don't know why i have to take those i'll just take i just want the woman Mm -hmm. and they said if you want your certificate you got to do all three and i had to keep the the grades up and the whole bit. So uh, it turned out that whenever they tell you you have to take something you don't want to graduate, take it, because <laughs> <laughs> you never know. It turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me there too. Chenard did a lot of good for me. That was really the beginning of everything for me is to be able to go to Chenard. But uh, um, doing the Pirates, there was a lot of things in the pirates um the sculptors were very difficult to work with at first and and uh i would try to tell blaine certain things and blaine uh would turn red and get very embarrassed and wouldn't <laughs> be able to talk about it but like uh they brought in some sculptors from new york that were uh very, very good at doing the classic figure, and uh, they were very good for for doing the bodies for the the men and women, the pirates. And uh, the problem was is that they would do when a woman got older, she would have sagging bosoms. They would sculpt the sagging <laughs> bosoms, and it would be be uh, cast in solid butyrate. You can't change the shape of it, um, and it's a shell. But this this is very strong stuff. In fact, it's a lot of the figures are still the same ones from '67. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, um, I would I would go over and and tell them that women wear corsets in that, and so the bosoms are where they should be, and some are bulging <laughs> over the top purposely by pushing them up. And they just didn't understand, so I went and bought a bunch of... I went to the, the department store and bought a bunch of brassiers and brought them back and put them on the, <laughs> on the figures <laughs> and said, you see, it's changed. <laughs> and, they said, and I finally got that through to them. But then the other problem came as to uh, the way they were sculpting the gentleman. And <laughs> so I would say to him... Um, you're giving me a big problem because you're you're sculpting men just the way God made them. But they said when you put pants on them, they wear them. They dress themselves to the right or the left, and uh, so they got very angry with me. We sculpt the way God made them, and that was it. And they wouldn't change. So I told him uh, it would be very difficult to dress them the way they're doing this. So uh, I had to drop the crotch about eight inches to make room for it. It looked like I didn't know what I was doing, (laughs) and I was angry because it was making me look bad, (laughs) and I couldn't get them to understand. So the uh, uh, auctioneer, I was working on the auctioneer. Walt wanted to see the auctioneer first, and that's the only figure he ever saw. He passed away before he saw any of the other pirates, and he was so looking forward to the pirate show. Uh, It was a shame. But anyway, um, I did the costume for the the auctioneer, and he had a vest that came just above the knees. And I knew what was going to happen, and he had the fancy lace cuffs and collar and all that and the hat and the scarf around his head and the wig and so on. And he was uh, perfectly dressed, he looked magnificent, and then when we turned him on, his face worked and all this, and everybody was just in awe. We you know we had never seen anything like this before, and uh, so I knew that there was going to be a problem, though, because the way they cut the the figure to make it work, they take and cut the backside of the knee out and have the th- the the. Uh, calf of the leg and the thigh come together but it could to be able to bend your knee in that you can't have the butyrate in the back so that would be cut out and the inside of the arm would be cut out so you could bend at the elbow and you would cut the waist, a section of the waist out so that you could Mm -hmm. have the the, uh, rib cage and the pelvis work separately and you'd cut the thighs out of the pelvis so that the pelvis could work separately to the thighs and so on and when they 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 turned on the I had all of the the sculptors all of the machinists everybody come to see this working and so everybody that worked on it got a chance to see it the first time it went to work and when the auctioneer was throwing his arms around and talking and so on he was it was just terrific the perfect movement very smooth, and when he leaned back and said, "How much am I bid, this great <laughs> came up through the vest.
3: No need to expose your superstructure,
2: <laughs> and all those sculptors what you know like this, and they said, "Oh my God, now we understand what you were talking about, you know and Walt was going to be there in a half an hour, and they said, What are we going to do? What are we going to do and I'm the only female there, and I said, "You get a hacksaw and saw it off." <laughs> and, and there was quite an emotional moment <laughs> with all of them, and they they finally did. And the sculptors came and apologized to me for not understanding what I was telling them, and it was a shame that Walt didn't get to see it. But we weren't sure whether he'd blow his stack or laugh, you know. Yeah, I did it was a serious moment sure. he had an awful lot of money <laughs> invested in that so uh, unfortunately he passed away a few weeks after that so even if he got angry i think he would have laughed when he got away from us and got his snickering but um it's uh, probably not the best thing for the <laughs> the public to know <laughs> what what happened in that but it was uh, it was a, an interesting moment in regards to the the pirates, but there were lots of other things that that there were you know that happened. And and when I did a remake on the the auction uh, the um, General Electric show, mm-hmm. there were a lot of funny things that happened in that too. But some of the things weren't so funny. <laughs> so they <laughs> kind of. But but when when you're doing something like this that had never been done before. Mm-hmm it was it was uh, uh I don't know you felt like a pioneer um, being and i I don't think I could make clothes for a human being again because I'd be looking for where the hydraulic uh tube came through with the red oil that mm-hmm. stained everything when it burst and would ruin the costumes but the the idea of my making two costumes instead of one was one that uh, nobody bought. And I said, but uh, if you don't have a, a costume to fill in in case something should happen, you're not going to be able to open, keep the ride open for, for a week or more till you get everything made because some of the hats take a whole week uh, because you have periods you have to sit and wait for it to dry and then do something else and wait for that to dry. So... Uh, I was told to go to the the pencil pusher and tell him how much yardage I needed for each shirt or each pair of pants, and I had a book this thick of all these orders. And so he would okay them, and he didn't know what I was talking about. And so I was ordering material for two costumes, not one. And I had them all made, and I hid one set in back because the girl could... Cut them out at the same time, there was you know if you did a time and motion study, I saved lots of time for that, and then uh when they're putting them together, they can put two of them together much faster than one, and then go back to do a second one sometime later and try to remember how she how it fits together so uh, oddly enough, I think it was about five weeks later after when the pirate ride opened, <clears throat> there was a fire. And the sprinklers went on, and it ruined a whole section of the f- the fire area. Oddly enough, it was the fire was in the fire, <laughs> so but it wasn't because of the fire. It was because of some electrical something in the building, and uh, so uh, Dick Irvine, who was the president of of Imagineering, he he came running out to me and saying, Alice how long is it going to take you to make the costumes to replace the ones that were damaged or ruined? And I said, well, if you'd bring me the fishing pole that the hats are on for the pirate that's holding the the uh, chest mm-hmm. and then he's got some jewelry and such on it and then he's got all these hats stacked on his head, well, they're on a fish pole. And it will move around, but the hats won't fall off. So I said, you can have everything in a half an hour. And he goes, a half an hour? And his eyes got big, and, and he didn't know whether to hit me or kiss me. <laughs> he, he stabbed his feet a couple of times and took off back up to his office. But it uh, the, the, was only closed for one day.
3: Yeah, and you alluded to, because I had to imagine, being used to designing clothes for people and then designing clothes for the animatronic dolls whose range of motion obviously certainly wasn't as much as an audio-animatronic figure had to present a, a great deal of challenges for you because you, are doing, you were doing something that nobody had done before, but also had that same challenge to a certain degree that you had at Small World, which was that level of authenticity in trying to create pirate costumes from the 17th, 18th centuries, trying to keep those accurate and authentic, and then still trying to maybe tailor them for a Disney attraction,
2: well, it w- it was um, Mark's sketches more or less set up the, you know, the period and everything else for it. But also, it was something there you had where you could put a lot of different things together, because what the pirates were wearing were things that they privileged. Uh, pill, pill, I can't say. <laughs> Well, Pillaged, plundered, yeah, have, plundered uh, rifled, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Their plunder that they, they took. Um my my tongue is not doing what I wanted to do today. Um anyway, uh it was imagination. A lot of it was being the swashbuckle bit of mm-hmm. your childhood when they were doing all these, these films and and such of of the pirates and so it was uh the imagination of of yourself and things that you saw that were the pirates. And all the little kids were running around with sticks and so forth and (laughs) having battles with it. So it was... uh, You didn't have people to uh, uh, imagine. Uh, You had to dress them to be what your imagination was and try to catch the imagination of others. But I think Mark did a marvelous job of putting it all together, really. It was...
3: And again, you, you brought his drawings to life. Yeah. And and what, if you can, what was the dynamic like working, especially on a project like this, probably so relatively closely with your husband? How did you sort of collaborate at work? And then did you, were you able to sort of leave work... At work, or was this always sort of the subject of dinner table conversation and you were talking and sketching? And
2: No, no, it, it was... Uh, Mark always closed the door when he came home. Uh, once in a while I would be asking questions and so on, and he would take it for so long and then no more. <laughs> <laughs> but there was never any arguments. We never had any arguments. And uh, Mary was a great one to work with, too in regards to uh, what she wanted color-wise and that. She was always very good at setting up the color patterns. But Mark also was very good with color and good to set it up, and they worked very well together.
3: When uh, Pirates was updated back in 2006, were you consulted on, were you brought on at all for, for any sort of discussion about the changes? And then what did you think of some of the changes and the additions that came to Pirates? Uh,
2: You're walking on difficult territory. (laughs) Um, I was not questioned on any of it. And also, they changed so much of it in the staging. And that's the staging and the lighting is what I complained about more than anything. I didn't complain, actually, to, to them um, I asked them why they did certain things, and then I was surprised that um, some of them told me that Mark had left notes behind the sets, saying why it should be, how it should be staged, and why. And Mark was a master at staging things, and I couldn't believe that they changed so much of it, and it was not not staged well. And. Uh, I didn't uh, spare any horses of stating that I didn't like the staging. Um, and so I wasn't invited to the the opening. They finally invited me the day before it was to open with the red carpet and all this. And I said, I'm very sorry, but there's no way I can possibly do that because I have to get somebody to stay with the house and the dogs. And uh, it's just that I can't go. And I said, if you would let me know ahead of time. And they said, well, we're so sorry that we forgot. And so it's imagination of the forgetting, too. But so I didn't go. I couldn't go.
3: You you also mentioned working on, again, another classic, iconic attraction like Carousel of Progress. I think maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with what you did there. Tell us a little bit about your work on that project.
2: Well, the, that was I was doing a remake on it because General Electric wanted it to be brought up to date all the time because it, the last part of it was all the new situ, new things that they had to show that you could spend money on, um, so they wanted to have the costumes changed to go with the time, and uh, that's what I was doing was changing the the costumes. But uh, the General Electric wanted to have as much publicity as possible from the show, and uh, so they eventually moved it from from uh, Los Angeles to to uh, Florida because in here in Anaheim, um, the majority of people that go to Disney. Land are uh, about seventy percent locals, and they would get a small amount of travelers. Where in Florida they get travelers from all over the world, because it's cheaper to f- come to Los a- to the United States and go to the, to Disneyland than it is to go to Disneyland in, in uh, France.
3: When you look back, and and I know it's the unfair question, but you have to ask anyway. Was was there one? I mean, was small world sort of the thing that you that you look back on most fondly or most proud of?
2: I I look back on it uh, from being proud of it and for for having things run smoothly and everything going together. Um, but I also uh, look at it from the standpoint of of the pleasure and the ability of being able to to. Uh, dress figures like that that you don't know where the the controls are going to be coming out of or going into which you have to hide and have it look normal and natural. Um, There were so many different things that uh, you had to use your imagination for. Sometimes I'd lie in bed at night wide awake looking at the ceiling (laughs) trying to figure out how in the world I was going to get around the Some control that they had to have. Um, And um, I don't know exactly what you would say was the the hardest, but the part that I enjoyed the most of it was that I was a a depression child. Uh, My father would say (laughs) it was bad, uh, 1929 was bad enough to get through, but you had to come too. Another mouth to feed, you know, which he meant as a fun, as a joke. But no dolls, no fancy clothes or anything. So uh, they always say if you wait long enough, you'll get what you wish for. So uh, I waited until I was in my 20s and was uh, pushing 30, I think, at the time. And uh, to be able to play with dolls, I had the best dolls in the world to play with. So that was. That took away the the part of not having the dolls when I was little. But I had the best, so there too.
3: <laughs> Do you ever get a chance to go back and, and ride the attraction again as a guest and sort of look back at your work now?
2: Yes, but you know, Disneyland has never been the same because when you work on it, when you go through the ride and that, you always look for something that's not working. <laughs> <and> you're very <laughs> concerned about it, and you want to tell something, you know, to somebody. When when I was doing it, I had a, a group of girls that would go through every morning before the show opened, and would check all of the the costumes, the the head, the wigs, everything else, to make sure everything was in proper order and working before it opened up. And that doesn't mm-hmm. happen anymore, but. Uh, it's, it costs a lot of money to do that, too, mm. and the money keeps getting shorter and the problem's bigger because most of the figures are the same ones, but now the, the ones for Small World have been changed. Uh, they're a different size now.
3: I always, you know, in, in preparing to, to get a chance to, to speak with you, I, I pictured in my mind's eye you riding Small World and getting off and saying, excuse me, miss, but the doll in France or something wrong and they, and them saying, lady, please just move along. You don't know what you're talking about.
2: (laughs) No, no, I, I didn't do that, but I, I uh, sometimes would see somebody I knew that was in the department and say, so, you know, and they'd say, what do you think of the ride? And I'd say, fine, excepting so-and-so isn't standing right (laughs) or the, the dress isn't fitting correctly or something like that. But, um, I must say I've, I've gone to the sewing room a number of times and uh the girls that are working there are so proud of what they're doing and they, they have my sketch and they hold the sketch up and say, See how close we are to doing <laughs> the the uh costume and that and they they're following and the other thing was I made insisted that there be a loose leaf notebook of every figure with the fabric The patterns Mm. and I had a hook with the the patterns to scale you know to to make the garment from perfect patterns for everyone and then uh, listed in the book the fabric and so forth and the colors and so on and they had never done this before and they had never made perfect patterns for the costumes before and uh, the last time I was there there was a room bigger than this whole house. And it's filled with all kinds of notebooks and such on every single figure and all the information and such. And I was, they were so proud that they had kept all this. They wanted me to be sure and see it. Uh, and they have things in the department now where uh, instead of having to go over and search everywhere for, for uh, fabric to match they have a machine now that um you put the plain the background fabric in and it will take uh they make a what they call a cartoon or a card that has the design or just the fabric itself with the design and it will go through this computer and it will print the pattern onto the fabric uh where we were making block prints <laughs> <laughs> or or stencils to get certain little pieces of material for one little thing, but uh, it was uh, it did my heart good to see that something that i I started has gone through, and now they have everything to where they can just go and pull out a a book and there it is, everything that they need for each figure.
3: Can I ask you what you thought of the relatively recent changes to Disneyland, where they added some of the classic uh, animated film characters into Small World?
2: I'll tell you this. I am very proud of Kim Irvine and the job she did with changing that. Now, you have the superiors that make the, the decision that this has to go in the show, and you have no control over it, but you have control of doing it in good taste, and she did it in the best taste possible. And everybody was on her back complaining, oh, it shouldn't be touched and it shouldn't this and shouldn't that. And I said, how can you say what she's going to do? You haven't seen it yet. You know, you have to wait. And uh, everybody was was torn up over it. I think I was more torn up over what they did to the pirates than to Small World. But, um, you know, it's like if you're going to make a film and say the film was was uh uh built on the the uh success of the pirate ride why did they change it mm-hmm. i i i didn't understand that but uh i'm one against many <laughs> <laughs> but um the, the thing with with Kim i i said t- and when it t- finally came out they, they were they were very kind and had a, a luncheon for me at the studio for my 80th birthday and the show had just opened and uh, they wanted to do a question and answer after the lunch and so they were asking I knew the first question they were going to ask was asking what I thought about the small world ride and the change and I said you know I think we all should take a, a bow and take our hats off to to Kim for the job that she did. I think she did a marvelous job under terrible pressure, and uh, I said that she she uh, was born with a Disney spoon in her mouth. Her both her mother and father worked for Disney. She was a second generation, and uh, she did a, a very good job and. Placed the, the figures uh, it, with good taste. And uh, she had to do what was asked of her. And I said, you have to realize, too, she has to pay the rent and, and buy food to eat, just like the rest of us. And she has to do the orders that were given to her, or else she'd lose her job. And uh, I said, I don't think any of us could do it any better. In fact, as well. And uh, so she was. She uh, let me know she was very pleased at what I said and made her life a little easier.
3: Uh, again, certainly
2: incredibly high praise, especially coming from you. Well, she earned it. She worked hard at it. She earned every every bit of it. And she had had known Mary and worked with Mary, and she knew what Mary wanted too. So uh, nobody had to ask. She, she knew what she was doing, and she did a very good job of it. And again, She's lucky to have her.
3: Keeping that integrity of the story and the characters carrying forward. Right. Um, if, if I can, I wanted to ask you about Walt um, and your relationship with Walt, because I know people talk about Walt as a mentor, a father figure, a demanding boss, whatever it might be. But can you tell us about what your relationship was like with him and, and sort of your memories of Walt?
2: Well, my relationship with him was a little different than most uh, and sometimes it would be difficult and sometimes <laughs> not so difficult, but the difficult part of it was is that mm. that he asked me to do the job and I didn't have to compete as hard as others to get the job. Um, also, I was Mark's wife, which was different too, because it when I worked there, the first week or two, they didn't know who I was, and then when they found out, things changed a bit. But um, we still got along very well at work and and uh, did our job without any problems. Um, Walt, at different, it was different at different times, like with everybody. And also, the other thing was is some very dear friends of ours were friends of, personal friends of, of Roy and Edna Disney. So I had a, a different uh, friendship there, which would show only uh, in at the shop. And that was because when he would come into the shop, he would always come over and throw his arms around me and give me a big kiss. And that was, I always said, was the kiss of death. Because <laughs> <laughs> Everybody thought I was freeloading, and I wasn't. I was working my tail off, and I was working weekends and all this, and they didn't know that they were all making far more money than I was because I was hired as a jobber. I was never hired as an employee, and I never got paid for, for holidays, and if I worked weekends, I never got paid for that either. I just got paid for by the day, and if there was a day I missed, that was no money so and they all thought I didn't need to be a, a, a how would you say an employee because my husband was and he was getting all the perks so I didn't have to worry about that well uh, there were some things that weren't so good about it but those are the things you take for getting to do what you wish to do so I, I did I, I decided to give all that up for for being able to work there and I I have never um, thought back about it or been upset about it at all. I was just overjoyed that I got to work at Disney Studios and get to know all the different people there, uh, who many are very dear friends and still are. Um, And Walt was a good con man, too. (laughs) And I think... the biggest con he pulled on me was uh, uh i was uh Miss, mrs mrs. Chenard was another idol of mine, and to be able to know her very well was another pleasure of my life and uh, she was losing the school uh, because of some bookmakers that were <laughs> well her her uh Bookkeepers, I called them. They were bookmakers because they were cleaning her blind, and Walt was very um, close with Mrs. Chenard because when he wanted to do Snow White, he knew his animators weren't the uh, draftsmen that he needed to be to do live figures and uh, make people believe that they were real people and not just a drawing on the wall. So uh, he went to all the different art schools, and this was during the height of the Depression, and asking them if they could train his animators to be better draftsmen and carry him on the books until the film opened, and then he'd pay them because he had no money to pay for them at the time. He was lucky to be able to get the... In fact, they were even washing the, the cells and reusing them they were so hard up for money. And uh, he he uh uh would say that, you know, would you keep you know, I'll pay you when the film comes out and they say there's the door. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to Chenard Art Institute, Mrs. Chenard, and he asked her and she said, Mr Disney, I admire what you're doing. She said uh the change from Uh, Steamboat Willie to the present time is amazing that you did it so rapidly. And uh, I admire uh, what you're doing. And she said, um, you are creating an art for America. She said, the Europeans have the old masters. The, The Orientals have their Oriental work from years and centuries ago. The Eastern Europe, the same thing. But we don't have a true art for America. And she said, you are building the true art of America. And uh, he thanked her for that. And she she really believed it. And she said, you send down your boys, and we'll train them. And whenever you can, we'll worry about that later. And so she trained them for two and a half years.
4: Mm.
2: They went uh, uh, one night a week to the art school and, and studied with Don Graham. And uh, he eventually, Walt uh, hired him to come two days a week or so to the studio and continued training uh, new animators coming along. And the nine old men went to Shenard at night. And my husband said that uh, Disney Studios was the finest school he ever went to because Walt was constantly bringing in all kinds of foreign films and uh, speakers and and uh arts art majors uh, not art majors but but artists that were the major artists of the time to give classes and such at night to the this the animators and different people working at the the studio and uh it was better than any any uh college or university would have and what he was doing and uh, I really do think he has made the the animation the art of the United States
3: and and I think the genius of Walt Disney was that from the very beginning he always surrounded himself with the most brilliant minds and the finest artists what was his passing like for you because of your special relationship with him and, and really for the company at that time
2: Oh, it was devastating. Absolutely devastating. It was like your father died. In some ways worse. Uh, just the genius of the man. He was always thinking 20, 30 years ahead of time. And he he loved new and different things. Anything that was uh, new, he had to know, know everything about it. And anybody who he admired their genius. He would always somehow get to know them, or or have them come to the studio and give lectures for the the employees. Uh, and he was he was always, uh, even when he was uh, under tremendous pressure. Very seldom did he ever uh, become irritated or uh, angry about things. He always had a way of controlling himself. Sometimes if he did lose control, I I wouldn't blame him in the least. <laughs> because they, well, it was like with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was fantastic, and nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And they, when it first opened in the World's Fair, uh, people were talking about how he stood up and walked forward. Well, he never walked forward, but they never saw anything like this, you know. And here he would stand up out of this chair and start delivering a speech. Um, in fact, one of the little kids in the neighborhood went to see Lincoln, and she said, boy, he was really scary. And I said, scary? I said, what was scary about She said, well, he kept tapping the, the chair with one of his fingers. And she said, we all knew he was dead, but he was moving. <laughs> <laughs> And then when he stood up, she said, that was really scary. <laughs> so uh, it was was interesting, the different attitudes. But when they were trying to, they were trying to, to uh, operate the figure beyond what anything had been created yet. It didn't have computers and so on. And they were trying to get this thing to work. And every once in a while, he would stand up and he'd start this speech, and then all of a sudden he'd sit down. Something would... One of the the controls would break down or something, and he'd sit down and he'd just splinter the chair. The chair would just... <laughs> it was a beautiful oak chair that would just be splintered. So uh, that... that uh, he, was, he was a couple of weeks late opening in the World's Fair, and it was because... Uh, you had to run him all the way through and make a perfect pattern. And if there was the worst little glitch or something, he'd all of a sudden jerk up or or sit down and mash the chair or something else. And then to add to it, when they finally got him working, uh, if something needed just a little bit of of touch-up or something, uh, or the machine needed to be tightened up a little, uh, or whatever they do to solve that problem, They'd have to go out on the stage. Well, next door to the, the Illinois p- the pavilion that he was in uh, was a Japanese pavilion, and they were giving away free ball bearings. They were, had a new ball bearing that they were advertising, and, and they'd give you a big handful of ball bearings to leave with. And they, they thought it was, they didn't think Lincoln was an audio-inotronic figure, they thought it was a real person pretending to be Abraham Lincoln. So they'd go over with a pocket full of these ball bearings and throw it at Lincoln. And it would make the noises and that, And but the figure would keep working and going on. But the poor guys that had to go out and, and make a change or something, on it, they'd go out and they'd be sliding all over these ball bearings on the stage. And some of them had terrible falls and got badly injured. And so we finally had to go over and ask them not to give away the ball bearings anymore <laughs> because of the everybody was getting half killed by them. so uh but there were there were lots of things like that 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 happened people throwing things at them because they didn't think they were mechanical, they thought they were real,
4: mm-hmm.
2: so we f- we were very proud and thought that was keen that they thought they were <laughs> real people, but <laughs> we were pleased with their destroying them with. With ball bearings and rocks and things that they 'd throw, but, uh, um, i think I think all of us were extremely proud to be in the beginning of a new type of three dimensional animation um, and I think that uh, we made Walt proud with it and uh also, it was giving him something else to work with in fact he he got so excited over that he wasn't too excited over the animation anymore but his his brother insisted that the animation continue because uh that's what made the studio and that that uh they owed it to the animators to continue with the animation
3: well speaking of of animation and and sort of thinking about. That legacy of Walt about surrounding yourself with the most brilliant minds. Um, when I started thinking about people like John Lasseter, I start thinking the same way. And and segueing to that, you were actually called up uh, by you were called on by Pixar to consult on Up, and it's a testament to the fact that still to this day they want to surround themselves with the with the best minds and the most brilliant people. Tell us what. Uh, what John Lasseter and the boys over at Pixar called upon you for to help out with Up?
2: Um, my style of life. <laughs> <laughs> the way Mark and I lived and what we did. We were, we were traveling to New Guinea and collecting things. Uh, uh, it was kind of our lifestyle, I think, more than anything. And, and um, we, had, we had what we called the Anthrobus Fund. And the Anthropus Fund was, I had a, a very serious horse accident when I was young. Uh, I, I can't remember, I think I was 20, and I hit a tree trunk. The horse got frightened and it turned and w- went down this deep hill between trees. And the horse leaned out and missed the trees, but I didn't. And I caught it with my left side and mashed the whole side of my face in and and broke all of my ribs that and uh, cut this eyelid loose and down the cheek. Um, and I didn't have any money. I was living like a, a lion from zebra to zebra, never knowing when the next zebra was coming <laughs> along. And uh, I uh, had to borrow money from my brother to get out of the hospital. I didn't even have money to pay for the hospital bill. And when I got home, (coughs) I opened up a letter that was in the post box from John and Jane Anthrobus whom I had met only twice in my life. And there was a good sized check in the the letter, and the letter stated that uh, this was their fund. And um, when they were very young and first married, a very wealthy person drove into them and demolished their car and So on, but uh, had the money to beat them in the the lawsuit and such, and they were destitute. They were had no money to pay for the doctor bills, and they had lost their car was destroyed, and so on, and so these people gave them money for paying off their hospital bill and paying for the car and the whole bet, and so they got a new start in life, and so they were passing on. the the way that the money, the way the people gave them the money was if and when they knew somebody that had an accident happen to them to pass the money on to them with no strings excepting if and when they could to pass it on to somebody else. So Mark and I put so much money away each year and we would give the Anthropous mm-hmm. Fund to people. And uh, we helped a lot of people, but nobody ever knows who they are because we don't tell anything. And... Uh, it makes it. It helps you, you know. Like when the when the car's tire would burst or something, well, that was an anthropus fund. Uh, to where they could get another tire, and so on. So, uh, I think it was just that they knew both Mark and I over the years and knew what we did, and uh, that was that was the. We we loved to go to foreign countries and and study and and go through the art schools and see what they were teaching and so on, uh, and they thought that was kind of keen and 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 they liked the way that uh, Joe Grant and his wife lived pretty much. They were both artists and worked together, and uh, had great joy in. in meeting and seeing other people and seeing how they live and, and uh, do what you can to help your friend. I always call our house our church. If you live a good life and you help people in need and you enjoy friendship, uh, it's a good way to live.
3: I, I Thank you for sharing that story. and I wanted you to tell it because uh, when I mentioned the film up, I, I think a lot of people's minds probably thought They went to costumes or colors or whatever it might be. But it really was about the special relationship that you and Mark had. And that's what the Fredericksons were. And that's what they came to tap into you to sort of share those stories with. And I think hopefully the next time people watch it, they'll have a better understanding that that's that's Mark and Alice Davis.
2: Well... I can't think of anything more flattering, in fact, I felt like I should tape my head to keep it from swelling <laughs> after I saw the film because the film was and it was a complete surprise to me, you know um I think about three years before the the, the film opened, I knew nothing about it it's just that that Pete Doctor called me, whom I admire no and he's fantastic um he and his wife both they're lovely people um He called and asked me if he could bring his animators down to see our house, go through the house in Mark's studio. And I said, sure. And he said, well, uh, would next week or something be good to see it? And uh, I said, fine. So he he brought all of them, and they brought all... I was surprised because they came with all kinds of cameras Mm -hmm. and everything else known to man. (laughs) And they spent... uh, at least three hours or more going around photographing everything the, the the inside of the house, the outside of the house uh and Mark's studio and so on and uh the day that it opened before I went in to see the film, one of the young animators came up and said, "Do you remember me i I went through your house and i said uh, yes i i uh, remember you and he said well I think you'll be surprised with what you see in the film and I said oh what, what's that and he said well just see see what we saw and I said I don't know if you know when it's coming down the stairs in the chair mm-hmm. uh, in the it's not the paintings that are on my wall but there were paintings on the wall and the, the rail and such was part of the house and there were a number of things that picked up on it but uh, it was it uh, the first half hour of that film made you laugh and cry at the same time. It was absolutely I loved that film, and when I saw my everybody said you have to say stay with it to the very end of the credits and this. And when I saw my name there, I almost <laughs> lost my teeth. <laughs> wow! What is this? My moment of fame. <laughs> But uh, and then then at the Academy Awards, I was the loudest one screaming and yelling <laughs> that he got the the Academy Award. And then we were I was at the governor's ball, having dinner afterward, and I was sitting at this table, and all of a sudden there was this great wham! I was sitting t- talking to the person next to me, and <laughs> this the whole table shook in this. And I looked, and there was the Oscar. And standing in back of me was Pete Doctor, and he said, "Look, our Oscar!" <laughs> and he whammed it on the table, and I about jumped out of my skin. But I leaped up and gave he and his wife both big hugs and kisses. It was a marvelous moment. Marvelous moment. I was so sorry Mark couldn't be there.
3: But. I'm sure, and I'm I'm sure he did proud. But you you have jokingly talked about uh, you know your moment of fame. But I think mm-hmm. something has happened over the past number of years or so, and even in the past couple of days, things like Disney's D23 and, and the events have brought you and and personalized who Alice David, Davis is for us, the Disney enthusiasts. And you have, like it or not, Alice, you have become a Disney celebrity, and you've become very, very well recognized over the past few years. I mean, did you ever imagine when you first started working on some of these attractions that this is what it would be? And Look, I sat in on a number of panels and discussions that you've been at uh, over the last couple of years, including one just a couple of days ago at at Destination D in Disneyland, and I, I watched the crowd as much as I watched the panel because more so than any of the other events and presentations over those two days, I think that is where people were just fascinated. And Marty Sklar kept you going longer than the hour and a half or so but we would have sat there for hours. I mean, how does it feel to you now to be sort of, you know, like people are asking for your autograph and for your picture and to be sort of thrust into the Disney celebrity status?
2: I still feel like I should go home and tape my head <laughs> to keep it from swelling. <laughs> I, But it also it's like old family meeting, you know. It's because they, they, they keep coming back. They keep coming back just like Walt said they would. And... Uh, they become friends, and I ask how their son is doing, or or their children, and this, and it's it's uh, uh, it's like a family reunion. I think I would say best, more than anything, it's a family reunion, and they're all there, and it's it's hugs and kisses, and and uh, I I thank them for coming because I said if it weren't for you and your eagerness, I would not have food in my mouth or a house <laughs> to live in. You know, it takes two to tango. So.
3: Well, your work is certainly um, very well, very much appreciated and respected. Uh, certainly you were you were named a Disney legend in 2004. You followed in the footsteps of your husband, who was given that honor in 1989. What did that rec- recognition from the company mean for you?
2: It meant a great deal, a great deal. And um, again, I wish Mark could have been there and been able to enjoy it with me because I think... I owe a great deal of it to Mark and to Mary and to all the people that I worked with. It I didn't do it by myself. It was a group effort by all of us. And that's the way it always has been. And it's why it's still a joy to see each other and, and catch up with time.
3: And we see that sort of love and admiration and mutual respect and that sense of family that... All of you and people like Marty and Exitensio and Bob Gurr and some of the other people that you worked with decades ago, um, you still carry that forward today. Uh, You're certainly so well-deserved of that that award and all the recognition that you get. Uh, Your work continues to bring laughter and smiles and incredible memories to generations of Disney enthusiasts, like Isn't myself, that
2: a good job to have. <laughs> it's the best job, you know. This is the other part. It was, it was so wonderful not only to work there, but to have people enjoy seeing and and uh, coming back to see what we worked at and and accomplished. And I think that's the the best part of all is to sit and watch the people enjoy what they're seeing.
3: Well, you should be very pleased and proud to know that the work of you and your husband will continue, your legacy will go on for, to thrill generations of Disney fans from around the world. So for that, uh, on behalf of myself and my family, and I'm sure the other people who appreciate your work, I want to thank you for welcoming me into your home today and for sharing uh, your stories with us and for all the work that you and your husband have, have done
2: that's my pleasure but i have to make one remark of a story that i told the other night <laughs> and that was the first day first time i went to disneyland and took this little girl who was crying because she couldn't get in and i tried to pay <laughs> to get in and i couldn't and because they said they closed up the park one hour before it was to be closed, in other words, not letting other people in because they were going to try to get them out <laughs> when the time came. And this little girl started crying, and she was going home to New York the next morning, and she'd never get to see Disneyland. So that's why. And I don't know why it came into my head to do it that way, <laughs> but I had to get her in there somehow. And so I'm waiting. I uh, I should finish by saying that... that uh, I said, we'll just stand over there by the the exit where they're coming out and talk and just walk backward, <laughs> be facing the same way they are, but walk backward through the crowd. And we got in, and they were very kind, and, and uh, she got to go on the rides. Uh, I Fortunately, Mark had given me some books that had the key on it that employees had mm-hmm. so I could get her on the, the rides with the, the key book. And uh, they even kept one open for one more go around so she could see it, so she could see everything she wanted to see. And I'm waiting for now since it's gotten out. My mother never even knew it. The only one I told was Mark, and it was almost the end of a good friendship (laughs) because we weren't married then. So anyway, uh, I... I, uh, I thought uh, any day now I'll get a bill from them for for going into the park, but that's the only time I've ever done anything like that, and I felt guilty for a long time. But at the same time, I was proud of the fact I got her in to see the show.
3: Well, this is good. This is very cathartic, then, that you're. uh,
2: I'm getting it off my (laughs) chest.
3: (laughs) You know what, though, you bent the rules to make magic, and I think I think that was the important part.
2: Well, I hope they keep everybody keeps keeping the magic going because it is magic and it's a place i've had a number of people say oh disneyland i'm not going there and i finally talk him into going and they become rabid fans now and they they say it is a place you can drop all your troubles and worries and go and have a wonderful time and it's true and we hope the magic keeps going for many years in the future
3: i'm sure it will again the legacy of walt And you and Mark and so many of the people that that built the foundation uh, for what is to come in the years that followed is definitely being followed through. So Alice Davis, Disney legend, and so much more. Thank you again so, so much for your time.
2: Well, thank you very much for thinking of me and giving me the choice of being able to spread more of the magic around.
3: We pillage, we plunder, we rifle and loot Drink up, me hearties, yo-ho We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot Drink up, me hearties, yo-ho
4: We extort,
0: we pilfer, we filch and sock Drink up, me hearties, yo-ho Maraud and empezzle and even hijack Drink up, me hearties, yo-ho
3: That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this week. Of course, I am so very grateful to Alice Davis for welcoming me into her home and allowing me to share the interview with you. I took a lot of photos from my time in Alice's house. I'm going to post those on the website at wdwradio.com in this week's show notes. It really was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and a privilege to be able to share that visit and those photos with you. You'll see some images from Mark Davis' studio, including his desk, the paintbrushes still with paint on them, and so much more. I also videotaped the interview, and while I won't post the entire unedited video online, I will put some edited clips of certain parts of the interview up on the site pretty soon. Best way to find out when those get posted is to subscribe to the WDW Radio channel over at YouTube. I'll post the link to that in this week's show notes, or just do a search on YouTube for WDW Radio. If you enjoy the interview, or would like to comment on it again, I invite you to come by the show notes this week over at wdwradio.com. Post your comments there. While you're there, I also invite you to come by our discussion forums, where you can talk about not just the show but anything Disney. You can post your own trip reports, join the community, and get in conversations with other Disney fans. Play games and a lot more. There's also photo galleries, new daily blog posts. You can also come by, shop in the WDW Radio Store. For logo gear, sign books, audio guides, again, don't forget Liberty Square and Mickey's Toontown Fair are now available. The CDs should be shipping by the end of this week. You can also find a link to download the free WDW Radio iPhone app and find out all the ways that you can interact and connect with me and the show through Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and so, so much more. And if you like this episode of the show, I invite you to go back. All the past episodes are available both on the website and under the podcast tab or in iTunes. So there's more interviews, detailed looks at attractions, vacation planning tips, so so much more. Again, most of these shows are evergreen, so you can go back and enjoy some of the older content. If there's something you'd like to see, email me at lou at ww.radio.com. There, if you have any questions you want answered on the show, you can send those to me as well. Or if you want to be heard on the air, you can call the toll-free voicemail line at 888 888- 703-2171. I mentioned the video of Alice Davis. Stay tuned for other videos coming soon. Be sure and check out the video tab over at www.radio.com or come by, subscribe to the YouTube channel, add me as a friend, and of course I invite you to come by and comment on any of the videos right in YouTube couple of quick reminders about some upcoming events the meets of the month for november and december i'm in the process of planning those now november's will likely be the weekend of the 12th or the 19th i'm working on details about that now and i've got something special scheduled for december so definitely stay tuned for that don't forget about the cruise on the disney dream is coming february 27th 2011 we still do have availability on the cruise if you are coming with us i hope you're getting as excited as we are Come by the forums. There's lots of discussions going on. You can also find shirts, other logo gear, now available at the Cafe Press Store. For more information and a link to that store, you can visit www.radiocruise.com. Remember, too, we're also going to have some pre-stay and some post-stay events in Walt Disney World. We do have some uh, rates at Walt Disney World with Illuminations Dessert Party the night before, things going on afterwards. For more information, you can contact MEI and Mouse Fan Travel over at mousefantravel.com. If you're heading to Walt Disney World for Halloween, don't forget to check out what's going on over at the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin. They have a poolside pirate party on Saturday, October 30th, and Sunday, October 31st. There's a poolside DJ, face painting, Lost Boys Campfire, crafts, games, walk-the-plank costume contest bingo, pie-eating contest, and lots, lots more. I'll put a link in this week's show notes where you can check out more about what's going on over at the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin. Remember, if you want to play Listener Fact or Fiction, it's been a long time getting ready to call a listener randomly and ask them 10 true or false trivia questions about Walt Disney World for a chance to win some prizes. If you want a chance to play, email me your name and your phone number to factorfiction at wdwradio.com. I'm also getting ready to do another WDW Radio Live video broadcast and interactive chat very, very soon because sometimes these things are unscheduled. The best way to find out when those are going on is to follow me over on Twitter. I'm twitter.com slash Lou and join the WDW Radio page over on Facebook. That is facebook.com slash WDW Radio. Again, I need to apologize. I know a lot of you have sent me friend requests Unfortunately, I have reached the Facebook-imposed limit of 5,000 friends. I cannot respond or accept you as a friend, but I do post all my updates again over on the WDW radio page. If you're looking for some more Disney magic delivered right to your doorstep, subscribe to or order back issues of Celebrations magazine. That's the magazine I put out with Tim Foster from Guide to the Magic. For more information, to see some covers, subscribe, order back issues more, Visit celebrationspress.com. There's lots more coming that I'm working on, I promise you. may even try something out new this week, so definitely stay tuned. Again, Twitter and Facebook, best ways to stay updated. And of course, my friends, all I ask from you is that if you like the show, to please help spread the word. Let others know about it. If you are a member of other discussion forums, talk about the show. Tweet out that you're listening. Share the link on Facebook Please come by, review the show, and or the free iPhone app over at iTunes. And as always, my friends, I want to thank you for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. I really do appreciate it. Remember to be inspired, be motivated, don't ever give up, and always, always keep moving forward. Have a great, great week, everybody. See ya.
5: Hi, Lou. This is Billy Latta calling from in New Jersey. I'm actually calling from Canton, Ohio, right now. Just finished listening to your educational opportunities podcast at Disney World. And I wanted to just talk to you and uh, say that I am in complete agreement that Disney offers endless opportunities in regards to education. And I've swam in the seas before. I have been on the Segway tour. I've done it all. and uh, But I can't help but, but say that the best one is by far the underground tour that they offer in the Magic Kingdom and you can do so many things there and I actually took that experience and I wrote my supplementary essay for college uh, for an architecture program and I got in writing about uh, Walt Disney World and that just shows how much, how much detail and how much attention that they go into in regards to the architecture, in regards to the history, in regards to so many different things and I just wanted to say thank you for talking about it and I look forward to hearing any other further discussions on the educational opportunities that you have to share with us. Have a good one, Lou. Bye.
4: Hey, Lou. This is Cindy Alford calling from My, my Magic Kingdom Bay Lake Tower View. I'm having an absolutely awesome time. And I've um, been listening to your podcast for about a year now. Mary Jo Collins turned me on to it. And um, we took the 1 o'clock tour of the Bay Lake Towers. And we were the Disney cruise expert on the panelists that they have at, at their overview and won um, all kinds of really cool stuff. And thanks to your show, because um, we have learned so much about the Disney Cruise, and we are going on the Disney Dream with you guys into February and cannot wait. Um, what's so funny is that our kids had no idea that we were going without children. Until we got into the overview, it was so much it was so funny. But anyway, luxury show, love the information, and um, loving this fall break. We got bumped back, Chattanooga did, back a week, and the crowds are low, and it's wonderful. So um, loving it, and I will see you guys soon. Bye. Hey Lou,
1: this is Marissa and Chris from North Carolina calling again. We're having a great time. We're on day four of a six-day trip. Uh, surprisingly large crowds going on here at all the parks, Epcot, Magic Kingdom, Uh, Hollywood Studios have all been pretty wall-to-wall packed with people, Uh, and that's kind of new for us, especially in October. I wasn't expecting that, but we're still having a great time. We're here in Liberty Square, right in front of the Liberty Street Tavern, waiting for the Main Street Electrical Parade to begin. It's my favorite parade. Uh, Tomorrow we head off to Hollywood Studios, but uh, just wanted to once again thank you, all your tips and the listener tips and all that good stuff has really helped us to make uh, the most of this really crowded uh, situation. Uh, we did take a little side trip over to the other theme park, the one that shall not be named. And I gotta tell you, I, I didn't love it as much as we love Disney, and that we keep coming back to Disney for uh, years uh, and years because we love it so much. And you know that other place just can't hold a candle to it. It was fun, but it, the magic is just not the same. So uh, again, thanks, Lou, and hopefully we'll give you another update uh, a little later on in the trip. Oh, we ate at the California Grill last night, and it was. Probably the best
0: meal I've ever had in my entire life. It was fabulous. Uh, that's, uh, that's all for now. Thanks, Lou. Bye. Bye. Hi, Lou. This is Doug from Iowa, Longtime listener, longtime uh, fan. Say, I'm just replying to your imagination challenge on show 187 of what attraction we'd like to have a restaurant placed in. Well, I already have you beat. My wife and I actually had a meal. Inside the great movie ride, we were uh, guests at a special event held for uh, annual pass holders, and it was just a wonderful evening. My, uh, the night was hosted by the wonderful director, Otto bon Bonbon. I hope I'm remembering that name right. Uh, we started off with drinks in the gangster scene, moved on to the main course in the cowboy scene, and topped this wonderful night off in, uh, with, for dessert in Munchkinland. Uh, along the way we were entertained by a host of characters uh, my favorite of which was the uh, good witch uh, Glenda now uh, this is just a terrific evening uh, getting back to your challenge however though uh, my wife's choice uh, would be a uh, dinner held in the train station on Main Street with a VIP showing of wishes out on the deck uh, now my, ch- my personal choice would be a revolving restaurant high atop and overlook above the savanna and the Kilimanjaro Safari uh, you could call it the treetop terrace uh, and that would kind of bring back those wonderful memories we had uh, staying at the AK Lodge uh, by the way I will note that we did eat at the soundstage restaurant when it was uh, still at MGM then MGM and uh, we really missed that place and uh, uh, it was good food, and you got to see a lot of interesting characters you don't normally see out. Notably, uh, Quasimodo when the uh, Hunchback show was still there. Well, listen, I won't take any more of your time. You're doing a wonderful job, and uh, keep up the good work. You're really uh, a ray of Disney when we don't uh, we don't have a trip planned. Uh, thanks a lot, and I'll see you.
6: Hi, Lou. This is Laura from San Diego. I am a cast member. I have to tell you, I'm so excited. Okay. I am a cast member at um, one of Disney Store's new Imagination Park stores, the one in San Diego. And uh, Disney Stores this weekend are having our, our dress rehearsals for Halloween, and we have two parties tonight. I'm so excited. I'm on my way to work, and I have my candy corn makeup on. I'm very excited to see all the little princesses and all the princes and pirates and Captain Hooks and everybody. And uh, I got a little behind on your show, and I've just gotten caught up. I'm fully up to date now. And I have to say, that interview with Bob Gurr, holy smokes, that was so interesting. Obviously, being from San Diego, Disneyland is my home park. And uh, there was so much about that that was just so fascinating and stuff that I see, you know, every time I go to Disneyland, but I just never even thought of, like, the omnibus and the perspective and how that had to be adjusted to be on main street it's so interesting and uh, i just love the show lou and
1: thank you so much for doing it see ya